You're listening to Faith for Normal People, the only other God-ordained podcast on the internet. I'm Pete Enns. And I'm Jared Bias. Hey, everyone. Before we get started, we need to tell you something very important and very exciting. We're returning to Theology Beer Camp 2023, which is hosted by our good friend Trip Fuller, but... Trip Fuller is the person I'm I'm least excited to see. I mean, if, if it's a, it's an event where Trip Fuller is the person I'm least excited to see. Can you this believe This is a serious that? event, you know? Yeah, it's fun. I was there last year and you get to hang out with some scholars, some very nerdy, nerdy people and enjoy some wonderful wild and live podcasts, some serious fun at a tailgate party and take part in some fall festivities. It really is a fun time that is also like, Oh man, you walk away from this having learned stuff. You got some great people coming to speak and all sorts of stuff. Yeah. And not to, you know, talk about other podcasts on this podcast, but a yeah, lot of our friends who do other podcasts, like Tim Whitaker of the New Evangelicals, Dan from You Have Permission, Josh Patterson from Rethinking Faith. There's a lot of folks who are going to be there. So if you listen to any of those or probably pretty much any other kind of theology based, podcast, they're probably going to be there. In in addition, some of our past and future guests, you know, like John Dominic Crossan and others are, are going to be speaking. There's also this other guy, I think Pete Enns is his name. I don't know. No one really. But also, mu- also music, music, which I'm really excited about. Who are yeah. some of the music folks? So we got Trey Pearson, we have Derek Webb, we have Dan Hasseltine, and it looks like a nice lineup. Anyway, folks, we should tell you when this is happening. This is happening October 19 to 21 in Springfield, Missouri. And you can get more info and sign up at the website, which is theologybeer.camp. And this is the most important thing. If you use code B4NP, that's the number four, B4NP GodPod, all one word, B4NP GodPod, you can get $25 off your registration and we get credit. We get like street cred yeah. if you use our code because then we're you know bringing folks and we want to know. All right, folks. Hope you show up. I'll be there. Jared will be there. We'll have fun. See you there. Today on Faith for Normal People, we're talking about how Latino church history is American church history with Felipe Hinojosa. And we're talking about this through the lens of his experience as a Mennonite and a historian of Latin American religious politics. And, you know, who's better to speak on that than Felipe, who's the newly appointed John and Nancy Jackson Endowed Chair in Latin America and Professor of History at Baylor University. I think this episode was actually his first act as chair. I think it was like day two. Now, he's written some books. Uh, a couple of them are Latino Mennonites, Civil Rights, Faith, and Evangelical Culture, and also Apostles of Change, Latino Radical Politics, Church Occupations, and The Fight to Save the Barrio, both of which are part of our conversation today. And don't forget to stay tuned at the end of the episode for Quiet Time, where we're going to reflect on the episode together. So, hope you enjoy this conversation with Felipe. How can we draft a narrative of American religious history that is much more inclusive, much more expansive, speaks to the different ways that Latinos enter the story, not just as Catholics, by the way, not just as Pentecostals, but also as Mennonites, also as Mormons, Jehovah's Witnesses, all of these sort of eclectic views and and understandings that made for such a vibrant moment in American history. Introducing Bluehost Cloud ultra-fast WordPress hosting with 100% uptime. Want a website with unmatched power, speed, and control? Of course you do. And now you can have all three with Bluehost Cloud, the new web hosting plan from Bluehost, with 100% uptime and incredibly speedy load times. 
your WordPress websites will be dependable and lightning fast on a global scale. Plus, your sites can handle even the biggest traffic spikes without going down or lagging. And with Bluehost Cloud, you get 24-7 WordPress priority support, meaning you're connected to WordPress experts anytime you need them. Not to mention, you automatically get daily backups and world-class security. So, what are you waiting for? Get Bluehost Cloud today by visiting bluehost.com. That's bluehost.com. Well, it's that time, folks. It's time for us to talk about microdosing. Microdose gummies deliver perfect entry-level doses of THC that help you feel just the right amount of good. Microdosing can help you get into a relaxed, focused zone easier and stay there longer. It has benefits for workout recovery, sleep, anxiety relief, boosting creativity, and even pain relief. You know, Jared, I have a really good friend of mine who saw that I was taking microdose gummies and she said, can I try some? And so I gave her some of the sativa strand and she said it has made such a difference for her at work and just in general, just feeling more alert and more focused. And it's quite amazing. So get 30% off your first order plus free shipping today at microdose.com. Promo code NORMALPEOPLE. That's one word. It's available nationwide. That's microdose.com. Promo code NORMALPEOPLE for 30% off and free shipping. microdose.com. Promo code NORMALPEOPLE. Felipe, welcome to the podcast. It's great to have you here. It's great to be on here. Thank you so much. Absolutely. Well, listen, we're going to get into some important things here, but just to start off, let's talk about, give us some insight into your personal history and the Mennonite expression of Christian faith. Yeah, you know, it's an interesting story. I didn't know it at the time that it was interesting, but looking back, just sort of where I grew up, I grew up in Brownsville, Texas. And for all listeners out there, I mean, that's the southernmost tip of Texas, right on the border the house that I grew up in was about a 10-minute walk to the point of entry from the city of Matamoros in the state of Tamaulipas in, in Mexico. And so borderland living was my entire life. I have uh, five older sisters, one older brother. My parents, my entire life at least, were ministers and, and pastors of a Mennonite church in Brownsville. And But, you know, as I grew up in that context, I'll just tell you a little bit about Brownsville. I mean, we're talking about a region that is overwhelmingly Mexican and Mexican-American and religiously overwhelmingly Catholic. So I was one of the few kids growing up that was not Catholic and that wasn't Pentecostal either. That was part of this sort of strange (laughs) Mennonite tradition. And it sort of came about because both of my parents were farm workers. Both of them, when they got married in the late 1950s, uh, my mother's family, uh, my mother was Methodist, by the way, my father was Catholic. Both my mother's family would go up and pick cherries in Traverse City, Michigan. They picked tomatoes in Northwestern Ohio. They would pick cotton all the way up as they drove up to the Midwest and those areas. And it was in Ohio where they would stop to pick tomatoes at Mennonite farms. And my grandmother, my maternal grandmother, who was a very committed Methodist, really loved that the Mennonites would give them Sunday off. There was no work on Sundays, and they could hold church. And there were a lot of Mennonite missionaries from Latin America that would be on furlough in Ohio, and they would hold Spanish-language Bible studies. This was just a novelty, just a beautiful thing for my entire family. They were able to take a break and worship God with other Mexican-American families who were also workers from different walks of life that were also there. And dad 
eventually after that many years of Bible studies and all that, gave his life over to Christ and said that he wanted to be a minister and that he wanted to minister to his people. So in about 1969 or 1970, he comes back to Brownsville and he starts a little Mennonite church in my uncle's garage in El Barrio de la South Most. Okay, this is a working class neighborhood. My uncle says, yeah, you can start your little church here in my garage. He didn't tell the Mennonites. Uh, the Mennonites, as you might know, are a tight group. <laughs> and so he didn't tell them anything. And they somehow word got up to mission headquarters in Indiana. And some of the denominational leaders came down to Brownsville to visit him. And, and the rest is history. Iglesia Menonita del Cordero, or Mennonite Church of the Lamb, was the church that he started in about 1970. And it's still a church that's going strong in Brownsville today. So you're obviously very much attracted to and obviously a part of the Mennonite tradition. So for people who don't know very much about what Mennonites are, could you just help us understand by giving us some distinctives of the Mennonite faith? Yeah. So first of all, I should say that a lot of people right off the bat will think of the Amish when they think of Mennonites or think of horse and buggy. And in South Texas, The idea was also very much on Mennonites that had left the U.S. and Canada in the middle part of the 20th century to establish colonies in Mexico, a lot of the old order Mennonites. But there are many different factions to this Mennonite and Anabaptist tradition. And the tradition that my parents happened to stumble upon was a much more Americanized version and uh, a much more evangelical version. Although I know for my Mennonite listeners out there, I'm probably going to get pushback for saying that. But it's true. They were mission-oriented. These were folks that wanted to bring people into the fold. They have strong ties to their German and Russian roots. And so there's a strong ethnic side to the Mennonite faith and the Mennonite tradition. There's a lot of surnames that I'm very familiar with that I can spot as being either of Mennonite faith or German or Russian background that I grew up in. And so We were a Mexican-American working-class family in a barrio in South Texas that had all of these connections to this sort of white ethnic religious denomination in the Midwest. And there's a big side to the culture. There's a big side to the ethnicity. But I should say that what really attracted my parents and other Mexican-American families, I mean, our Mennonite church was almost entirely Mexican-American and working-class in Brownsville when I was growing up. But what attracted a lot of us was were two main distinctives here. The first is a peace emphasis, this belief in pacifism and this belief in non-resistance and this belief that there are different ways to solving conflict. So that was a big one. And, and I should put that in a, in a Mexican-American context where we have a very rich military service tradition. As a matter of fact, it's many of our World War II veterans that join and start the civil rights movement after they come back from fighting in World War II, very similar to African-Americans who returned uh, after the war. So there's a strong tradition, and yet amongst our communities here, that notion of pacifism and being able to not simply think of the military as a way out economically for our families, that was something refreshing for us. The second thing that I should note is social service ethics and the ways in which Mennonites engage the world. Yes, they wanted to invite you to church and they wanted to pray for you and they wanted you to accept Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. Missions was was central to this group in Brownsville. But at the same time, you couldn't separate that from 
the idea of social justice. And you couldn't separate that from service, right? So that missions and service went hand in hand. This was something that was not mutually exclusive, but very much integrated and threaded together in everything that we did as a church. And I think when you're in a poor community, when you're in a working class community, and especially in the 1980s, when we are on the receiving end of a large influx of refugees from Central America that are escaping war, a war that our government was funding and fueling, civil war in Central America, that kind of prophetic witness really appealed to a lot of us growing up and to a lot of the parents and families that believed that if you were going to follow Jesus Christ, then that meant that you had to serve your neighbor. I'm speaking here as a, I would say a baby Mennonite. You know, I grew up in in Texas. I grew up Southern Baptist and um, moving up to Southeastern Pennsylvania, being introduced to, to the Mennonite tradition and being a Mennonite for the past eight years. I just resonate with those distinctives, the peace, social service ethics, you know, the prophetic witness our congregation has, instead of vacation Bible school, we do a peace camp where we teach kids like conflict resolution skills. And I really uh, appreciate that and resonate with it. But as a follow-up to that, as a historian and in some of your work around Latino churches in the 60s and 70s in the, in the 20th century, how did those distinctives take a more specific shape in Latino communities? Like what's happening in the 20th century, mid-20th century around how this takes shape in Latino communities specifically? Well, I mean, I think, first of all, you start with the Vietnam War. The fact that more Mexican-Americans were dying in Vietnam as a result of this war and were being drafted, I think, sends a strong signal to a lot of the Mennonites and Puerto Ricans also. You know, my first book on Latino Mennonites looks at South Texas, but also New York City, Chicago, the island of Puerto Rico, and looking at how this sort of moment in American history where this rising political consciousness among young people, this sense of duty, this sense of also for Latinos in particular of wanting to prove their Americanness, wanting to say that they also belong to this American story, that they're going to contribute to the makings of democracy. It's a powerful moment there. And to be able to come across Mennonites that were in effect, bringing sort of, to use Don Crable's words, this upside down kingdom, this different way of viewing citizenship, this different way of viewing the world as to say, you don't have to join the military and go and fight in Vietnam. You don't have to do those things to prove that you are a citizen of this country. You are a child of God, right? You belong to God's kingdom. That was I think a really powerful message, especially for young working class Latinos in urban and in rural areas of South Texas, that gave them some sense of an alternative way of being, an alternative way of viewing the world. And of course, while Mennonites are doing that, and Mennonites had a very sort of strong, non-resistant stance on that, Black Americans are avoiding the war. Muhammad Ali is stepping away from that and refusing to go and fight in Vietnam. And MLK is becoming much more critical of Vietnam. And so Latinos are watching this in terms of a much more forceful way of being peaceful, right? Not just simply the Mennonite way. And that's quite a significant, I think, narrative for Latinos that are joining the civil rights movement, that are participating in it, they are people of faith. And so to be able to join those two, their love of social justice and to reform and revolutionize a society, but their love for God and their love for Christ, moving them in a way to think about 
avoiding the draft or becoming a conscientious objector and refusing to fight in Vietnam is not just a political stance. It's a theological one and it's a powerful one at it. And that was really powerful for me because in my home, my dad was a, you know, a pastor. And so I didn't realize it then, but many of the people that would come and visit dad on the border were African-American Mennonites from St. Louis, from Chicago, Puerto Rican Mennonites from New York City or from the island who had basically come up in this Mennonite church, challenging it, challenging its whiteness, even as they took in and very much internalized this love of peace and of non-resistance and so forth. So it's sort of like this sort of eclectic world that is shaping and happening at the same time. And Latinos are finding a way and finding their path within it. And it's not all white Mennonite theology. It's not all the ethics of non-resistance that Mennonite ethicists like Guy F. Hirschberger were talking about. But it's much more, I think, sided with what Martin Luther King was talking about in a much more sort of forceful sense of non-resistance and peacemaking. That was really powerful for a lot of these folks, and it made for some very interesting oral history interviews, for sure. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. You know, Pete, I've been pretty emotional this week, and I was trying to reflect on why that was. And it turns out, you know, my best friend from college just died. My mom's been in the hospital, and I just haven't taken the time to reflect and process all of that. And it's been coming out in all these wonky ways, and that's exactly what therapy can help with. That's really been my experience with therapy as well. I've benefited tremendously from therapy, and I think lately I've been able to get to the point of why. It's learning to look at your situation more as an observer from the outside instead of just reacting to things, just thinking about it and processing the information. I find a lot of the problems become more manageable that way. And that's what therapy does for me. So if you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and it's designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and you can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash BNP today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash BNP. Did you know Fast Growing Trees is the biggest online nursery in the U.S. with more than 10,000 different kinds of plants and over 2 million happy customers in the U.S.? They have everything you could possibly want like fruit trees, palm trees, evergreens, houseplants, and so much more. Whatever you're interested in, they have it for you. Find the perfect fit for your climate and space. Fast Growing Trees makes it easy to order online and your plants are shipped directly to your door in one to two days. And along with that, their 30-day Alive and Thrive guarantee is amazing. They offer free plant consultation forever. We got our bushes in and you can tell I don't know what I'm talking about because I just call them bushes. But we got them in last night. And Fast Growing Trees knows what they're called. Exactly. That's the whole point. It comes with this placard that tells you exactly what to do like you were in fifth grade, which is the exact instruction <laughs> level that I needed. And it was very easy to follow. We loved the process. This spring, they have their best deals online up to half off on select plants and other deals. And listeners to our show get an additional 15% off their first purchase when using the code NORMALPEOPLE at checkout. That's an additional 15% off at FastGrowingTrees.com using the code NORMALPEOPLE at checkout. FastGrowingTrees.com code NORMALPEOPLE. Offer is valid for a limited time. Terms and conditions may apply. I 
I'm always interested in how we get such diverse and divergent expressions of faith when we might say we're using the same Christian tradition, we're using the same biblical text. And, you know, at the same time in mid-century, we start getting the beginnings of like the moral majority and, and evangelicalism as we kind of know it today, looking back, was really gaining its ground and forming its roots around the same time, you know, talking about it as theologically and as biblically as you know, the Mennonite communities or even other uh, African-American or Latino religious communities are taking shape around the civil rights movement and these things. What historically, how do historians think about this divergence and what are the theological underpinnings that lead us in these such different directions? Because the picture you're painting of these Latin American and African-American communities and how their religious faith is compelling them to non-resistance, peace, but also social service and that kind of ethical framework, I can't help but contrast it with sort of my upbringing and the history of that tradition as well. Yeah, no, that's a great question. I don't know that I can speak very well to the theological underpinnings, only to say that I think this is the reason why I am a strong believer that Latino history is American history, primarily because I think it's easy for folks today to see Latino religious communities and maybe categorize them as apolitical, maybe as more reformist, or maybe in some circles even quite politically conservative. And it was a 180 degree difference in the 1960s and 1970s. There was a much more radical tradition of faith where people were drawing on different modes of thinking and different ways of understanding the world. And Mennonite, Latino Mennonites in particular, were a part of this movement. And one of the things that religious networks do is it brings people together that otherwise would not have joined together. I mean, one of the things that I write about in in my book is looking at multi-ethnic coalitions. And this is something that towards the latter part of the 1960s, when we look at the rise of black power, when we look at the rise of brown power, We sometimes, I think, tend to erroneously look at some of these groups as living in these silos where they were cultural nationalists and they were looking after themselves and that was it. Nothing can be further from the truth. And our prime example is in the city of Chicago with the Rainbow Coalition that Fred Hampton, the leader and the founder of the uh, the Black Panther Party chapter there in Illinois and Chicago, joining with Puerto Ricans and joining with Appalachian Whites in neighborhoods across the city of Chicago to push back against urban renewal. Those are the kinds of ways that I think about, not so much theologically, although I suppose there's a lot of theology there too, but I'm thinking about how these religious networks bring people together that otherwise might not come together. In the Mennonite context, it was Black Americans with Puerto Ricans, with Mexican Americans. And we can't simply assume because they're people of color that they're going to somehow agree, and by the way, also progressive whites within the Mennonite church, we can't just sort of assume that because they were politically aligned, that somehow they shared a similar political worldview. Nothing could be further from the truth. And I think there were a lot of contestations within them, but also a lot of ways of being and viewing the world in terms of thinking about what does it mean to be Latino and Mennonite? What does it mean to be Black and Mennonite in this particular context What does it mean to practice white Mennonite theology and pacifism in a context where 
much of that theology comes from a place of privilege, and much of that theology comes from a place of economic privilege in particular, racial as well, but, but also very much economic. So I'm thinking about it in those ways and in those terms to try to say, okay, how can we draft a narrative of American religious history that is much more inclusive, much more expansive, speaks to the different ways that Latinos enter the story, not just as Catholics, by the way, not just as Pentecostals, but also as Mennonites, also as Mormons, Jehovah's Witnesses, all of these sort of eclectic views and and understandings that made for such a vibrant moment in American history. Yeah. So, I mean, could you flesh out a little bit more, Felipe, for us, I guess, the tensions that maybe you've experienced and, and studied between I guess, white evangelicalism and Latino freedom movement or Latino justice movements in the church? Yeah, I think, you know, first of all, being able to sort of directly understand the question of who Latinos are, because for many white Americans in the 1960s, Latinos were invisible completely, even progressive whites that were very much on the side of pushing back against urban renewal some even joining the farm worker movement and maybe even marching with Cesar Chavez and not completely understanding the plight of Mexican-Americans or Puerto Ricans in urban and in rural contexts. There's a, a, an incredible quote that I use from the Presbyterian National Conference that took place in 1969 in San Antonio, Texas. And Presbyterian Church was there gathering and James Foreman, who had drafted the Black Manifesto and the Black Manifesto was basically, uh, in a nutshell, asking for $500 million from white churches that had enriched themselves through slavery and the enslavement of black people. So Foreman is, is invited to come to this conference in 69, and Latinos show up. Nobody invites Latinos, but they show up, and Foreman creates some room for them at the stage, and there's a young man by the name of Obed Lopez from Chicago. They had just occupied McCormick Theological Seminary, and I can say more about that a little bit later. But the point is that Obed gives his speech. He talks about the Latin American and the Latino in the United States and the issues that they face. And one of the Presbyterians said, Foreman sounds prophetic. He's charismatic. He's this. We must listen to him. And these Latins, because that's the term that was used back then, among others, Spanish-speaking or Latin, these Latins sound like far-off thunder. And I think that for many white evangelicals at that moment, Latinos were an anomaly, a puzzle, wrapped in an enigma, let's say. They weren't really Latin American, which they understood maybe that context better, but they weren't, quote unquote, fully American. They were perpetually foreign in their sense, right? Some of them spoke English, some of them didn't. Some of them with accents, others not. Many of them were undocumented in the 60s and 70s and were leading many of these civil rights movements. And so for a lot of white evangelicals at this moment, there's a real sense of misunderstanding. Mind you, the movement of liberation theology is bursting and booming in Latin America and coming from that. And that, to a large degree, does help at least situate Latinos within a theological frame and a theological context. But Latinos, to a large degree, were just learning of liberation theology themselves and trying to figure it out and trying to make a way for themselves. But to their credit, the creation or the idea and the development of a particularly Latino and Latina theological frame begins to emerge in the 1970s. Writers like Justo Gonzalez, 
María Isasi Díaz, Orlando Costas. These folks begin to draft the first draft of what it means to be Latino in the United States and Christian. And what are the theological frames that we use that, mind you, are grabbing and learning from James Cone, that are learning from Philip Berryman, that are learning from liberation theology in Latin America, and are trying to merge all of these theological viewpoints together to get at a sense to say, we are brown, we are not white. And white America must deal with us whether they want to or not. When you say that, it rings or it resonates with, if I just go with my instinct, I tend to associate liberation theology with Latin America and with Latinos. What was it about that that resonated and, and allowed for, again, maybe some raw materials out of which a Latin American theological framework could emerge? Oh, I think first and foremost that it was contextual, right? And I think now, I mean, at least maybe I take this for granted, but thinking about all theology as contextual, right? And emerging within a particular place and time for Latinos to read the Bible in Spanish, for Latinos to sing coritos or short little hymns that are fast paced, that are a different cultural frame and context than white American evangelicalism, that are more, much more representative of their culture. The worship is more lively. The sermons maybe drag on a little longer. The prayers are maybe a little louder. There's a sense of joy within the congregation and the church that you could be who you wanted to be in that space, right? One of the things that I write about in the Latino Mennonites book is the first encounter with Mennonite missionaries in South Texas in the 1930s and in the 1940s. There's a really strong sense by the Mennonites that this is the way you must dress. You must sing a cappella, no instruments inside of the church. This is the way we read the Bible, on and on. These were all these cultural requirements that Latinos were imposed and took on upon themselves. What the 1960s and 1970s did for Latinos, and especially the rise of liberation theology, was to be able to see themselves in a brand new way, to be able to rearticulate their identity, to reject this notion that they were to just assimilate and become white Americans, to take on a quote-unquote brown identity, a sense of difference and a connection with indigenous roots, a connection with their language, with their culture, and a strong sense that we are not doing church in the way that white America does church. We're going to create our own distinctive ways of doing church. And that, I think, was you know a beautiful moment in terms of the development of, for example, mariachi mass in the Catholic church. The bishop, Patricio Flores, who was the first Mexican-American bishop appointed in 1970, institutes this mariachi mass. And so you have these instruments inside of the church, this sacred space that would have never been allowed prior to Vatican II, especially. So being able to sort of think about the church in these sorts of cultural ways really, I think, dictated the kinds of connections that Latinos would make with liberation theology and even, to a large degree, create their own sense of theological frame here in the United States. Mm -hmm. You mentioned the 1970s as sort of a big moment where there was maybe more of a sense of a self-consciousness and, and a good sense of the word for Latino theology in America and uh, maybe the Mennonites in particular. 
And I'm just wondering, like, what I don't like the word to use progress. That's really not the word I'm talking about, but the expansion of this thinking. I mean, are you hopeful for where things have been going the past, say, 40 years here in America? Um, I mean, I always try to be hopeful. <laughs> okay, so you're not. Go ahead. <laughs> yeah, I mean, talk about what's what's going on, really. To, yeah. I mean, talk to us about that. Yeah, I mean, I think there's different ways to sort of think about this history. One is we certainly have seen in at least the last 30 years a much more sort of conservative shift within a lot of Latino evangelical churches. I don't want to deny that at all. And that's something that worries me. There's going to be a conference, by the way, in Atlanta in September. I'm, I'm not able to make it, but it's going to be on at Candler School of Theology that's going to look at the Latino version of Christian nationalism in the United States. So there's obviously concern, right, for those kinds of currents that have arisen as of late and have been there for, I think, quite some time. I think the other part that people sometimes forget is that this is a community that is consistently, for lack of a better way of saying it, reintroducing itself to itself. It's an immigrant community that is replenishing communities that are either assimilating to some extent, acculturating to some extent, and immigration kind of keeps this vibe going instead of in, in the sense of what it means to be Latino in the United States. Now, what that has translated into is a fervent and powerful immigrant rights movement within the church and in secular settings as well. And it starts not just in the sanctuary movement in the 1980s, as I mentioned earlier. You know, Latino historians have noted that, at least in the place of the Latino church, this notion of being sanctuary dates back hundreds of years, if not centuries, in terms of indigenous communities, the colonial era, and even moving into the more contemporary era. So I think that that's the place where I do find hope, where there is a continued responsibility that begins to emerge in the 1970s among Latinos that are viewing themselves as Mexican-Americans, as Puerto Ricans that are now New Yorkans, right? They're raised in New York City or Puerto Ricans in Chicago or wherever they may be, where they begin to see the ways in which our country continues to intercede or get in the way of foreign governments and especially in Latin America and how that intervention then spurs on the immigration, right? Uh, Juan Gonzalez wrote a great book. I think everybody should read it as a primer to Latino history. It's called Harvest of Empire. It's a fantastic look at how U.S. colonial projects have then created this massive wave of immigration to the United States from Latin America. That movement continues, and that continues to be strong in the church. And that's my one area there where I cling on to the hope of our churches that are continuing to carry on that, what I would view as a very radical tradition in housing immigrants, undocumented folks, helping them as they're here, continuing to see the church as a space of orientation, as a space of welcome. Shout out to Claritin for supporting this episode and providing us with samples. You know, folks, I've had allergies my whole life and I never knew what to do with them. I didn't even know that I had allergies. But anyway, one day I went to the doctor several years ago and I said, listen, I keep having a stuffed nose and it's just my throat hurts and it's horrible. And he says, have you tried Claritin D? And I said, no, I haven't. And he said, you have to. See, luckily for those of us who live with the symptoms of allergies, we can live Claritin clear with Claritin D. This double action combination of prescriptive strength allergy medicine and the best decongestant available relieves sneezing, 
a runny nose, itchy and watery eyes, an itchy nose and throat, and sinus congestion and pressure with ease. You know, I've been taking Claritin-D for my allergies for about 15 years, and it's been an absolute life changer. I can go for hikes without my eyes watering like a fountain. I can speak without feeling like a frog has jumped into my throat, and my nose isn't stuffed all the time. Ready to live life as if you don't have allergies, it's time to live Claritin Clear. Fast and powerful relief is just a quick trip away. Ask for Claritin D at your local pharmacy counter. You don't even need a prescription. Go to Claritin.com right now for a discount so you can live Claritin Clear. Use as directed. A calling is a powerful thing. It's a very strong belief that there is something bigger for you. It's about who you are and where you're going in life. You may be in college, you may be halfway through a career, but you want something different. There's a place for you at Union Presbyterian Seminary, where students are prepared for a call to ministry. At Union, you will find a diverse community. You'll find students from different denominations and professors who will listen to you and challenge you. You'll find people who help you find your own path. You'll find a school where financial realities matter. Union offers generous financial aid, and it meets you where you are with three different platforms for learning. residential online, and hybrid. You'll find a world-class faculty who will invest in you, a community long after you graduate that supports you and equips you for service and for leadership. Safwat Marzuk, who has been on the podcast here on The Bible for Normal People, is a faculty at Union Presbyterian Seminary and is slated to write one of our upcoming commentaries. It's no secret, if you're a listener of the podcast, how much Pete and I have relied on our seminary education and how much that has shaped our view of the world and all of our work here at The Bible for Normal People. It's your call. Respond with Union Presbyterian Seminary. To learn more, go to upsem.edu or email admissions at upsem.edu. What is the response for, there's a social pressure here of what do we do with, it's kind of sort of the law and order way of thinking about this sort of God has created an order and this is, which basically means we have to uphold the laws of the land. And if you break the rules of the land, then you get your just desserts and punishment. It is a different theological and ecclesiological and social framework to think about how our political system and our religious traditions either are in bed with each other or they can clash how do people navigate this with your background, your understanding of history, your own experiences? And again, I don't think our listeners necessarily will struggle with that for themselves personally, but when they step into spaces where it's not taken for granted that these powerful immigrant rights, the prophetic witness, the social service ethics, these things are not part of a lot of religious traditions, especially I would say in kind of white evangelicalism. How do we talk about these things in a way that might help move the needle, so to speak. Does all that make sense? It, it makes perfect sense. I appreciate the question very much. I mean, I think, I think we should keep in mind that even as we sit here and talk, there are conversations like this happening in churches across America and in neighborhoods. The landscape is changing. The demographics are changing. This is the panic <laughs> that a lot of politicians, I think, are reacting to these days with their attacks on diversity and equity and inclusion with critical race theory, this sense that the idea of what it means to be an American is changing, right? And that somehow immigrants are to blame for that, that Latino immigrants are going to fundamentally change this. And on top of that, they're criminals and, you know, all of these sort of myths that get thrown 
out there. I think those are these grand narratives that live in the world and we must take them very seriously. And at the same time, I still have a very strong sense of hope that people in their communities and in their churches figure these things out for themselves. And I say that, I think, based not so much on my work as a historian, but as my my own upbringing in a church that was in the middle of a working class neighborhood, had about 150 people in it growing up. We were a, a family, certainly with our own problems. The church had its, its issues, ups and downs and so forth. But there were also a large group of white volunteers, Mennonite volunteers, VSers, they called them, voluntary service workers that would come down to Brownsville, give up a year or two of their life. They would serve as a nurse. They would serve as a teacher, construction worker, whatever it might be. And they lived in the community. I know that they were sympathetic to us and they were there to serve us. And there was a sense of giving back for them. But I also know that they didn't really understand us either. And I'm not sure that we understood them either. We didn't understand how you could give up a year or two of your life with no pay and go live somewhere else and volunteer for a year or two. That didn't, that didn't make any sense to, to our working class uh, sensibilities, right? And yet what I witnessed, and this wasn't some sort of utopian community of white and Latino Mennonites that you know were going to church together and all of that, but I think it really sort of put us and it forced us to be in a space where we had to understand the sense that it wasn't our identity shaping our politics, but that it was our politics shaping our identity. That it was the way that we were looking at the world, understanding God, and our even our social location that was shaping and helping and situating ourselves as a Mexican-American congregation that was working class, some were immigrants, some were generationally there. And so what that meant at the grassroots level was that you had white volunteers that had much more freedom to march in the streets of Brownsville, and you had much more freedom to criticize the U.S. government, to be much more vocal. And our church, which I saw it in, in retrospect now, looking back, I see it as being a part of this radical sanctuary uh, church tradition, not because they were marching in the streets, not because they were carrying bullhorns, not because they were giving rides to refugees up to Dallas or Houston, although that was happening, but because they were offering meals, they were offering clothing, a week of shelter, money, and a phone for a long-distance phone call when a long-distance phone call was a thing. These were radical things at the moment for a church such as ours. And so to be able to understand our own social locations, to be able to understand the places where we're coming from, I'm hoping that we can begin to understand why people might take these different political beliefs and these different stances on politics and then maybe work together where possible or not work together, right? But I don't, I, it's not enough to simply sort of throw the law and order argument at us or at some of these churches without trying to do the work of understanding where they're coming from, of understanding their context, and understanding that for many of us, this work is deeply, deeply personal. It might be that some of our families are undocumented. It could be that it's a generational thing, but it's certainly rooted in who we are uh, as a people, and it, it's part of the tradition that we come from and that we exhibit. And I also think it's why we get attacked in the way that we do. You know, we and by we, I mean, within the Mennonite congregation I'm a part of and within kind of the Mennonite conference and other things like that, I think there's a struggle 
for figuring out how to, I don't know if balance is the right word. There's a heavy emphasis, at least in in kind of our area around discernment and around staying together, even amidst disagreement, till we figure out a way that everyone can be at the table. And in trying to figure out how to navigate that when the things on the table are matters of, say, LGBTQ inclusion or immigrant rights and these things that it's a very privileged conversation as a primarily white congregation to have that we can sit around and talk for two or three years to bring people along while maybe those that we are talking about don't have the luxury of not being harmed by our our patients. So I'm I'm curious because I only have this white privileged experience in that congregation. I can't really get out of that because that's where I, I find myself. How has Latino Americans, Mennonite congregations wrestled with this patience, welcoming, and yet also the prophetic witness of being on the front lines of things where also, though, we are called to this discernment and to sort of be patient with others as they come along? And we're, I would just say, I personally find it a challenge to figure out how to do that personally. And then, of course, as a congregation, we're trying to figure out how we, you know, you talk about working together. Do you have have you any insights of how do we balance that? I think it's it's a very relevant question, you know, post 2016 for how we figure out how to do things together while also paying attention to the people who are suffering in our patients, if that's a way of saying it. Yeah, I don't think there's an easy answer to that. I think part of what I love and am fascinated by with the study of the civil rights movement and of the Latino civil rights movement in particular, although I think this goes for multiple movements across across the board and, and during that time, was that I think we have a sort of romanticized sense of what these movements were really like. I mean, I'll never forget when I was in graduate school, one of my professors was writing a book on the farm worker movement on Cesar Chavez and Dolores Huerta. He had gone up to Wayne State University where the labor archives are in Detroit and had, you might or might not know this, but Chavez basically audio recorded every meeting that they ever had in the farm worker movement. And so he had copies of these tapes and he would play before every seminar, before every class, he would play about 20 or 25 minutes of these tapes of these meetings that they had. And they were not what I was expecting or not my own romantic ideals of what the movement would have been like with prayer and singing and all of this. There were fights, there was shouting, (laughs) there were cursing, there were all of these things that were going back and forth. There were, you know, pointing fingers at a lot of the privileged white kids that had come out to California to march and weren't struggling in the same way. There were folks that were talking from their positionalities, the kind of abuse that women suffered, uh, the lack of funds that a lot of the organizers had. There were some real deep and fundamental issues that they had to consistently work through. And I think taking those lessons for me has reminded me of the power of exactly what you're saying, which is doing the hard work of sticking together as much as you can, as long as everybody who's in it is cognizant of the fact that this is going to be a struggle and we're all at different, we're taking a different pace as we go, right? And and not everybody's going to be able to contribute in the same way. Not everybody's going to be there at the same time. But I think given the political trends that we have been in, we really do not have any other choice in terms of where we are as a nation currently and what we're doing. You know, we spoke about hope a little bit ago. One of the things that gives me hope is that, you know, we tend to think of, and I'm in Texas and 
people see us as a very conservative state, and we are. People look at Alabama or Georgia or Florida as states that are keeping the nation from you know progressing forward. But if you take a closer look, it's in the South and in the Deep South in particular where there are some of the fiercest and strongest movements for immigrant rights, for Latino rights. And when I say immigrant rights in the South, I'm not talking just about Latinos, right? Talking about Asian immigrants, talking about different African immigrants, different folks from across the globe that are coming to the South and the young people there, people like the Georgia Latino Alliance for Human Rights, the murals and the artistic work of the muralist Yemi Cambron. If you, if you drive around the city of Atlanta, you see the faces of immigrants at Mercedes-Benz Stadium in downtown Atlanta. And I bet people, I bet people probably miss that when they're driving through that city. They don't see those murals. And I think it's a, it's a powerful testament to the work that people are doing in some hotly contested parts of our country. My thinking is if they can do it and they can continue to be as successful as they have, if organizers in Houston and organizers in San Antonio and Austin can keep pushing back against gentrification, can keep pushing back against gerrymandering that, that has completely flipped our state and kept us stagnant, if people can do those things, then certainly anywhere that we are at in this country we can continue to do that work. That's the sense of struggle. That's the sense of fight, of tenacity that I think we need to take a, a look at and learn from as we continue to do this work. That's what I think about when you're asking your question. I just, I went straight there just sort of thinking about this is a fight. We're in it together. And if we can stick it out as much as we can, even with all our differences, I think there's a way forward. I really appreciate your perspective. And, you know, I have kind of my own insider stuff. I'm really struggling right now with as a Mennonite with, we're in a very unique, it's an interesting situation of having one of the larger, more privileged, more affluent congregations in our conference. And we're progressive and we are in conference. We are in communion with a lot more theologically conservative congregations who are not welcoming, but they are like immigrant congregations, a lot of uh, South Asian and Latino American and they are like, those churches are like community centers for these folks. They are resources for lifelines. You know, it's it's a matter of survival, of getting them to navigate the American bureaucratic system. It's food, it's, it's shelter, it's clothes. It's interesting to see these value systems being put at odds. It's like, okay, they're more theologically conservative. And so for us to fellowship with them, like our progressive friends are like, you can't do that because they are not like welcoming LGBTQ. But if we pull our support, they are using our funds to like serve immigrants and serve people in their congregation. It's like, whoo, this is a tough one to navigate. Yeah, for sure. I've known of, of those conversations. I've been a part of many of them myself in Mennonite higher education circles and in, in at the church level too. And so, yeah, have have been very much a part of that. But I also... Like I'm, I'm a big believer in like, we cannot, there's no way that we can step away. We have to continue to stay engaged with each other, even if our politics differ, because I think that's what at the end of the day, maybe there's a bridge that's built, maybe there's not, but if there's a conversation, there's always a possibility. Yeah. I really appreciate that countercultural perspective. I'm an evangelist for Latino history because I just think it's so important for people to, to understand that when we talk about the civil rights movement, 
you know, there were so many different angles and takes to it. I think we're just barely now scratching the surface to really understand. And I'm hoping that it becomes a relevant thing for today's organizers, right? That it's something that they can take and say, you know, hey, look, there were multiracial, multiethnic coalitions being built back then. You know, how were they dealing with difference? How were they dealing with ideas of capitalism versus socialism and all of these gender inequalities and all, sexuality? Like none of that is new. How can we learn from that? Because I think there's there's a rich, rich story there that's yet to be told. Mm-hmm. Yes. Well, Felipe, thank you so much for, for being with us. You know, you said something as we bring this to a close here, unfortunately, you said before that Latino history is American history. Yeah. And, uh, you know, of course, included in that is Latino church history is American church history as well. You know, I, I went to seminary in the 80s and I taught in a seminary for 14 years and none of this stuff was talked about. They had particular traditions that they needed to perpetuate. And so this is, you know, I, I want to thank you for all of us for helping to expand our vista a bit and to see the world differently and to to see how other people are navigating some difficult things and trying to do that within uh, you know, their faith in Christ. Well, thank you both for the work that you do. I think thinking about the ways in which people live out their faith and having these conversations is supremely important. I've learned a lot in these last few months listening to you both. So thank you. And now for Quiet Time with Pete and Jared. Well, so Jared, you know, we talked with Felipe and he's Mennonite and so are you. So just what led you to become Mennonite? What was the draw for you to be a part of that community? Yeah. So I think for me, I was drawn to the community, particularly the congregation, before being drawn to something abstract called being Mennonite or Anabaptist. So uh, it's not like yeah. I came through, I studied the theology of it. Not like when That's I was- That's how cults work, by the way. Well, when I was Reformed, though, it was the other way around, <laughs> which was most abstract. Never even been really to a Presbyterian church, and I'm getting books on tape and lectures on tape from the Westminster Bookstore like on cassette tape of Greg Bonson and Cornelius Van Til being mailed to my house. And so it's very abstract for me. It's all like theological. This is very different. This is the opposite where I like came to a congregation and said, oh, this is great. I love this. Oh, this is Mennonite. Okay. So that's what, you know, led me there was, was actually interestingly enough, the story is I had come back up to Pennsylvania to work for something. I was teaching in Phoenix at the time at Grand Canyon University. And I had flown back to Pennsylvania for something. And before I came back, someone had reached out to me and said, hey, we're reading your book, Genesis for Normal People. This was probably back in 2013 or something. And they said, we're reading it as our Sunday school. It's lots of lively debate. Would you mind coming and like talking to us? So when I came back to Pennsylvania for a work thing once, I went to this congregation and they basically is a room full of older adults, probably in their 60s and 70s. And they mostly just yelled at, I like talked for a little bit and they mostly just yelled at each other and like debated each other on what the significance of Genesis was and how we read it. And there were literalists and there were, you know, symbolicists and everything in between and historical contextists. And I thought this is fantastic. It's just such a lively debate. Mm -hmm. And at the end of this, they're all going to go to lunch and they're going to just stay connected and half of them are related to each other. So they're still family. Like... I just really appreciated that. So that's really what drew me. And then the piece uh, later on, as I got to know more about it, kind of the peace emphasis I've shared before we have at our church, 
uh, instead of vacation Bible school for kids every year, we have peace camp where they learn like peace mm-hmm. uh, making skills and conflict revolution skills and things like that. And I, I just really, really appreciate that emphasis within the Mennonite denomination. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, I mean, not to be simplistic, it sounds more like a lot of spiritual formation and honest discussion and not so much hold on to these specific thoughts using this language and expressing it in this way. And then you're sort of safe on the inside. So, yeah. Right. Well, um, if you would, Jared, just reflect on the ending of the podcast with Felipe, where you talk about the tension of, you know, fellowship between more progressive and more conservative churches. The context for that, which I'm hesitant to share, it's not necessarily my story to really share, but it is uh, within the denomination and within our conference right now, really struggling with being in fellowship when we we have a what's called a conference that we have lots of congregations in. And it's interesting because those who are more theologically conservative are often the ones who are the pillars of their community in very practical, financial, social, administrative ways. Mm-hmm. And we want to support that. And yet theologically, we can be very different because we are more progressive, sort of inclusive, welcoming, that right. kind of thing. And it's just a real hard tension to sort of figure out how do you be in fellow, how do you support a group of people because they're doing really good work in one area while holding to things that you think might be harmful to a group of people? And how do you navigate that? And I think it's, for me, the reason I brought it up was, yeah, it's helpful on the institutional level, but I think it's more also how do we hold space for differences and understanding that we come at conclusions at different times and in different places and thinking back to if someone hadn't held space for me to kind of go along in my own piece, I might've overreacted and doubled down on my Mm -hmm. fundamentalism. If it was sort of like, no, right now you have to choose. And if you don't choose this, you're against us and we hate you and you're excluded. And how dare you? And kind of shame-based rejection of you. It's just complicated. I don't know if that makes sense, but no, it does. So, um, that was modeled for you, I guess, that kind of merging together of what are typically poles, you know, progressive right. and conservative. Right, yeah, and holding yeah. that tension in some very uncomfortable ways. And so the community helped you do that? Oh, for sure. Yeah. Yeah, right. because there's a, a value, I think it, it's a Mennonite value, of discernment. And discernment, what I've learned tongue-in-cheek, is talking ad nauseum about something and just refusing to make a decision until it feels good to the community. Yeah. And it's just like, oh my gosh, we got to go. Like we talk about it as a community and then we go to every individual and talk about it with them. And then we come back as a community and then we go back to every individual and just discernment is trusting that the spirit of God will work in the process to Mm -hmm. bring us to the conclusion that the community needs to come to. And it's like, ugh, coming from a top down evangelical megachurch where you just have a dude at the front who just tells you the direction we're going, that can feel really messy and inefficient to have a community-based kind of grassroots decision-making model. Right. And I think, you know, the criticism of that, which I don't agree with, is that, well, you're not getting good doctrine. You need, that has to come from the top Mm -hmm. to what to think. But in a sense, what I think what you're describing is doctrine in a sense. It's like what, how should Christians live and, and but it's like the, ground up. It's from the ground up. Yeah. And the debating and stuff and that, you know, we've had guests on and we've talked about how Judaism tends to historically allow for that kind of latitude to really debate things and to, you know, have a space to think together 
without feeling the pressure of having to come to the same conclusion. Yeah. So, yeah. Well, I'm going to turn the tables on you a little bit. Just kind of in that same vein, who was patient with you when you were trying to like navigate these faith shifts? Generally speaking, I would say it's people who had themselves had a similar journey before I did, and they understood already what was going on. So I think it's just being in that in, in those proper spaces where people have experience and are going to support you. And, you know, that's happened in church, but more in recent years, like the last, I say, 10 or 15 years before that, not really. You know, so it took some time and it took me leaving some of those communities and trying to find other ones. But that's where that kind of support can happen. It doesn't happen everywhere, and you can't ask a sort of a top-down institution to support you in a journey that undermines top-down thinking, you know. So, But it was it's just people, just everyday people, and sometimes people whose names I probably don't remember. I just came across them. Maybe I read something they wrote, or I just met them, or they're friends of somebody else. And and all of a sudden, you just realize maybe you're not so crazy for trying to think differently about stuff. Yeah, I think that's a good answer to that question. Maybe too, then, do you find yourself still, do you struggle with compassion? And, and I mean that in a sincere sense, because I think it's worth a struggle. I think we can't assume when I say, do you struggle to have compassion who with those who aren't there yet? Sometimes I can feel like the automatic answer is we need to have more compassion for those who aren't there yet. But I think it's a genuine question because sometimes the not being there is hurting people too. Yeah. Right. Like, right. and that's what we struggle with sometimes even in our congregation or other faith communities that I, I see is, yeah, it's one thing to, to, if you're not there yet, it's not just about you. It's about the people that are being hurt because you're not there yet, mm-hmm. that you're still excluding a group of people who want to be there, but they have to sort of wait on your time. You hold all the cards mm-hmm. for when they get to belong in the community. So I ask that sincerely, do you struggle to have compassion for those who aren't at a place that you feel like is more loving or more inclusive in faith communities? Um, sometimes. Yeah. I mean, I think it depends on how well I know the person. Cause if I know somebody well, I was like, I know their heart to use the phrase, right? And it's like, you know, I think all sorts of things that I wouldn't impose on anybody else. I just don't know what those things are, right? And so I have to be compassionate. And I think it's it's fair to say that I've become aware of that need, but also I think, I like the way you put it, there's also a struggle involved there as well, because, you know, where, when should you speak? When should you sort of maybe give some unsolicited advice? When should you just sort of like accept people for who they are? And I just, you know, I, I do try to treat people in this respect the way I would hope people would treat me, which is not to judge me too quickly, but to give me space to try to figure some things out. So to me, that's compassion too. But sometimes you're right. People are actually really harming emotionally, physically, spiritually. They're actually doing harm. And that's, that's a different thing altogether. For me, that continues to be a question of how do you navigate wisely this world right. of of shifts and faith shifts, but also relational shifts and emotional maturity and immaturity and shifts in how we show up in the world. And right. so I don't, we're not going to answer it all here, but I think it's a good place to start. And I think uh, Felipe's, the episode actually helped maybe raise some of those questions too. Absolutely. Well, thanks to everyone who supports the show. If you want to support what we do, there are three ways you can do it. One, if you just want to give a little money, go to thebiblefornormalpeople.com front slash give. 
And if you want to support us and want a community, classes, and other great resources, go to thebiblefornormalpeople.com front slash join. And lastly, it always goes a long way if you just wanted to rate the podcast, leave a review, and tell others about our show. In addition, you can let us know what you thought about the episode by emailing us at info at thebiblefornormalpeople.com. You've just made it through another episode of Faith for Normal People. Don't forget, you can also catch our other show, The Bible for Normal People, in the same feed wherever you get your podcasts. This episode was brought to you by the Bible for Normal People team. Brittany Prescott, Stephen Henning, Wesley Duckworth, Savannah Locke, Tessa Stoltz, Danny Wong, Natalie Wyand, Jessica Shaw, and Lauren O'Connell. Yeah, um, can I have two minutes to feed my cat? You son of a...